This is the Education Gadfly Show. Well, you know, nah, 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 people. Here's at least one piece of evidence, and there's more. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the Tua Tago Viola of Education Reform, Benjamin Bohr. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Hey, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Yes, Alyssa is here as well, my co-host, hey, Mike. as always. Uh, have a good time watching the football game last night. I have to or say, I did Monday not stay night. up for the end of it. So, yeah, so did I totally butcher that guy's name, Tua, something or other, uh, Guy from Hawaii came in the second half to basically win the uh, national championship game in college football. Yeah, I didn't know it was happening, so I can't uh, I'm sorry. Alyssa, I know. I, did you watch the Golden Globes? I was thinking of going with the did. Golden Globes. I did. I actually instead. watched last night. I was started watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which uh-huh. won a couple of Golden yeah, Globes. Yeah, we are so. finally, because of that, because of the, the Golden Globes, watching uh, Big Little Lies. Also a good one. So we are one episode in. But I couldn't have Ben be the Oprah Winfrey of education reform. That just didn't seem to quite fit. He as is in, in Chicago. That's true. That's true. And you, you want me to just, you want me to give a big speech? Well, and I got to say, I mean, Ben Ben is is quite articulate like Oprah. Gives mm-hmm. a stem winder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, perhaps in other ways, uh, the parallels don't quite fit. But Ben is the deputy director at Advance Illinois, which is a state-based education reform group in Illinois. And one of the groups in a big coalition that helped to get an incredible school finance reform across the finish line mm-hmm. in 2017. Uh, they won the Game Changer of the Year Award from the Pi Network for that. Mm-hmm. Ben uh, won the MVP uh, for the network, which was well-deserved. Also, and Ben, we're just so glad to have you on the show and to talk about advice you might have for other states who are going down this yeah. same path of school finance reform. So let's do our Ed Reform Update. So, Ben, you know, this. Uh, just last week I came out with my predictions for some of the big education reform developments to come in, in 2018, and some folks pointed out to me that I missed a big one, and they were right, and that is school finance reform. It appears that many states are looking at trying to redo their funding formulas, maybe pump some more money into the K-12 system. This as we are, what, uh, about a decade into an economic expansion, which mm-hmm. means uh, the good times probably aren't going to last forever. So this might be one of the, the last times before another recession uh, when, when states might have some money to spend. Uh, I'm curious from your perspective of, of finally getting this done in Illinois, a state that had been had really one of the worst school funding systems in the country uh, in terms of equity. Uh, how, how did you get it done? And what advice do you have for reformers in other states that are trying to do something similar? Well, Mike, I have to say, I agree that, you know, this is this is a moment in time where, you know, we're starting to see the economy normalize and there's an opportunity to start to put some to put some money in. And, you know, I think I mentioned in my uh, MVP speech, um, you know, that we haven't seen a big change in uh, progressivity of education funding in the nation in in about 10 years. Uh, And that was done by the Urban Institute. So this is really an opportunity to to try to get more money to to low income uh, schools mm-hmm. and and try make sure that they can get the results they need and I think that you know that's really where the conversation started in Illinois and as you mentioned you know uh, there was an education trust report in 2015 that just sort of pointed out that Illinois was the most inequitable state in the country and I'm hoping that other states don't have to be the most inequitable in order to to see the same type of change but you know the research is pretty clear that we need mm-hmm. to 
you know, that low-income students often have need more services and such. And so you, you would expect that you would spend more. And in fact, most countries do spend more on the low-income students than on their non-low-income students. And the United States is an anomaly that way. So that was that was really the sort of emphasis of the conversation here in Illinois was just sort of laying that groundwork of getting people to understand the inequity issue in, in Illinois. And <laughs> and then we proposed, you know, there was over a span of year, different proposals came out. And, you know, I think some of the initial proposals had a level of redistribution in that. But as uh, more and more people came to the table, we started to pull together a coalition that said, look, we recognize the inequity issue. Um, redistribution is going to be really tough. But what can we do, especially as we invest new dollars to make sure those dollars are going to the districts that need them the most? And once we had set up the conversation that way, and once we got that broad coalition together and they were talking about it that way, that created a lot of momentum for change. Mm-hmm. All right. So to be clear, so what you're saying is once you basically told people, we're, nobody's going to have to take a haircut here. No, we're not taking money away from anybody. This is about putting new money on the table and making sure that is driven to the neediest places. But the, the affluent suburban districts that are spending a gazillion dollars a year, uh, they they don't need to worry about losing money. Is, is that fair? Is that a fair characterization? I think that's I think that's an accurate description. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the reality was as we sort of reviewed the numbers, the number of districts that were really, you know, spending at the really high levels, the amount of money that was compared to the amount of money that our low income mm-hmm. districts needed was was really not comparable. Yeah. Like we needed an investment strategy versus a redistribution strategy. And so um so that mm-hmm. that's where we landed up and in other words, e- e- because those dist- those affluent districts were so small that even if you tried to take a bunch of money away from them, it, it wouldn't make much difference. That's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Illinois has, what, 870 school districts across the state? Something astronomically high, right? Yeah, 852. <laughs> it goes down slightly all the time. Mm-hmm. But we're, yeah. So we're trying, but not making big gains. <laughs> yeah. Now, two questions here, Ben. What One is, how were you able to make sure that this money also got to high-need charter schools, that they were a part of this? This bill also helps to close the equity gap between charters and traditional public schools. And, and did performers push for anything in return when when you're given say a chicago public schools a bunch more money was there a sense that hey they they need to embrace reform as a part of the deal so you know this comes on the tail end and and really the conversation started on the tail end of a lot of reform that was already going on so mm-hmm. you know the initial reports that we were doing on equity were right as we were doing standards right as we were rebuilding the accountability system right right as we were looking mm-hmm. at there had been an expansion of charters under race to the top so there was a lot of work that had been that had already been done I, you know the honestly you know the with the charter conversation it, it was just sort of folded into the overall conversation, which is that, you know, low-income schools needed greater investment. And so mm-hmm. that sort of just naturally fit in um, as part of the overall conversation. It wasn't really looked at overly askance. It was in the bill, you know, sort of in the mm-hmm. bill from the very beginning that that was mm-hmm. going to be part of it. Um, and, you know, the real focus was how do, you know, many of the districts that had charters were some of the districts that were the least adequately funded. Um, so mm-hmm. it was really about getting those districts money, uh, you know, and that was going to lead to some expansion of of charter money as well, Mm -hmm. regardless of anything else. Yeah. Ben, you've kind of circled around a couple of them, but I'm curious to hear what are like 
two or three of the like best arguments or the best messages that you used um, when talking to legislators that people in other states who might be gearing up for similar fights uh, might be able to use in their own battles? Well, so so first the equity argument. I mean, I, I just, you know, I was, I think we were surprised. Very few people pushed back against the fact that low-income districts need to spend in general more than non-low-income districts. I mean, where, where there's some complexity, it was like, you know, some of the conversation was, well, those wealthy districts are actually spending too much was sometimes the conversation. But we just hit that mm-hmm. head on. So once you once you got that platform, I don't think we had complete bipartisan support around that. Uh, the second mm-hmm. piece that, you know, I think sort of resonated with everyone in the state was this idea that there, you know, we had to come up with a mechanism for determining how much was an appropriate amount for each district to spend. Because, you know, we had this inequity, but it was really difficult to see in all the numbers. I mean, you have two districts that spent the same amount, but one had a really high low income population. How did you know that that low in- that school with that was spending the same amount with the high low income population was actually not spending enough? So we came up with this concept called the adequacy number. Um, and that was in a number of the bills prior to this year. But this year, um, it was based on something called, and I think you guys have some knowledge of this, is the evidence-based model. Um, and that was used to drive a adequacy number for each district. And the nice thing about that number is it played sort of two roles. In one role, it shows where districts are not spending enough. It actually also is showing in some of our districts where they're spending more than adequate. And, you know, that's very often a local choice. So there's a lot of local control in there. But, it, you know, it sort of provides a level of transparency into how much districts are spending in a fundamentally different way. So I think those two messages were sort of the critical message that, you know, we needed greater equity. We needed to have a number for each district that we knew how much they were spending. And then once we had that, it was really clear that there were just districts that weren't spending anywhere close to what they should be. And that driving mm-hmm. most of the dollars to those districts first made the most sense. And, and what do you think, Ben? I mean, is it, is it, it seems cliche to say, but probably true that gubernatorial leadership is essential here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this was Governor Rauner had to uh, be a part of this big part of this negotiation, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what's I think remarkable about this bill is that it, you know, really came, started being built up from the ground up. I mean, there were yeah. there were a number of legislative champions. There were a number of um, uh, you know the governors. Uh, governor had a commission in in, in back in February that uh, that was led by his uh, secretary of education who went through a lot of the, the stuff. But a lot of the technical details, a lot of the messaging was actually done by advocates. And so the the need for advocates and a coalition to come together to really understand the technical details really uh, well was, I think, one of our biggest challenges. Um, you know, these are really mm-hmm. technical, complex topics, and those make sometimes make for hard things to advocate around. But what was so remarkable was the number of people we had in our coalition and the fact that they all became fluent in the formula and what was being proposed meant you could have really technical conversations. We had probably over 20 town halls across the state. We had a webinar series that we put together where um, we had 500, same day, we had 500 people on the web, three different webinars on the same way, just the number of people trying to gain knowledge about the system. 
That's great. Yeah. All right. Very well, cool. I like it. So it sounds like uh, sounds like advocates don't have to wait for a governor, uh, though maybe at some point you're going to need him or her uh, at at the end of the process. Keeps you know make, makes me think you got 36 uh, states where there is a race this year, and probably a lot of good groundwork to be laid at the very least, so that a year from now when new governors come in, they might embrace. Uh, something that's already got some real momentum. Uh, but Ben. Uh, that that captures it perfectly, Mike. Yeah. So just, just yeah. to say that. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Ben. Ben Bohr from Advance, Illinois. Again, congratulations on incredible accomplishment there. Uh, and we hope you'll join us again. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Alyssa. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back, Amber. Thank you, Mike. Hey, did you watch the Golden Globes the other day? I just didn't. I don't know. I just thought it was going to be too political for my taste. And it would have been. <laughs> yes. But I got, did you go back? Have you watched the Oprah speech? I yet? watched a little bit of Oprah. I know yeah. everybody gave, was giving Oprah some love on well, the speech. I, Good speech. It, you know, and I know, of course, it gets uh, now everybody wondering, is she running or not? But if you set that aside and just listen to it as a speech, wow. Yeah. It was an amazing speech. Yeah. Oh, right. oh my well, God. it's yeah. worth hearing the whole thing. Then I did not. I did not. I just heard a little blurb. So. Just as, as a great example of oratory, you uh-huh. know, for those yeah. uh, speech it was a good students speech. out yeah. there. It was uh, yeah. a, yeah, excellent. You know, her and Maya Angelou were buds. And so yeah. I, I just loved Maya Angelou. And mm-hmm. anyway, so I made you to get some tips from Maya because Maya, I took a class by Maya Angelou and she did you? was really? an orator. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I feel like That's that so is cool. like a classic, like who would you go to dinner with? Like pairing, yes. like wow. you would go to dinner with the two of them. That is cool. All right, what you got, Amber? Anyway, we got a new IES study out by Daniel Hubbard that examines how attending high schools with high value added impacts students' first year grades in college. Pretty cool study. I, I love that question. I love it so much that we've been trying to pitch it to funders for like a year now. We had an idea doing a similar study. We did. He did it. He did, he did it. it. He did it. Ours would have been, for, for the record, ours would have been even more outcomes than just this, but uh, whatever. Um, there's been very little research on the topic, so this translates uh, into an important contribution. He uses student-level test scores and demographic data from public, middle, and high schools in Michigan to estimate school-level value added. Then he merges those data with college data to measure, again, post-secondary GPA. Mm -hmm. His sample includes all students in Michigan public schools who first sit for the 8th grade math and reading MEEP. That's the Michigan Mm -hmm. State Test. Between 05, 06, and 07, 08 school years, they must also take the 11th grade state test to be included, and they have to take a course in a Michigan public college within five years of the year in which they did sit for that 8th grade test. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Y'all care about that, right? This is a little bit about the sample. Yeah. And then, because we all know there's a huge selection problem and sorting into high school and college, so there's probably 13 pages mm-hmm. on all the different things that they do to try to deal with selection into high school and college. Mm-hmm. And one thing, just to note, what included restricting the sample to students who are very likely to go to college. So then they just looked at the kids who were really high on those ACT benchmarks that show that they're college ready. Mm-hmm. They met like all those. And so the idea is they would have less margin to have their college going decisions impacted by the quality of their high school. Mm-hmm. And then they basically found that those results didn't change the overall tenor of their key findings. Okay. 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 And what are those key findings? Drum they roll. are that there is a statistically positive relationship between high school value added and college course grades. The effect of attending a school with a one standard deviation higher value added 
is about 0.09 grade points higher than the grades of an identical student in an average high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is about a third of a difference between a B and a B plus is one thing that they kind of make you figure out what does that really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, results by subject area show similar positive relationships for both tested and untested subjects. So this is not just math and reading. Mm-hmm. They looked at untested subjects, found basically the same pattern. And what's crazy is those untested subjects include a wide variety of courses including psychology, business, welding. I mean, they were kind of all over the map and they were still seeing the same relationship. Further, students who are enrolled in schools in the bottom quartile, this is interesting, gain more from attending schools that raise scores from very low to somewhat low Mm. than from attending schools that raise scores from high to very high. Mm-hmm. So impacts are also larger for black students than for white students and for and also slightly larger for poor kids. Mm-hmm. So in other words, disadvantaged students aren't being left behind here. Uh, the conclusion reads, just quote, because I thought it was a great conclusion. Uh, the results imply that schools with high value added are not earning those scores by teaching to the test or by reallocating resources toward tested subjects, but instead by preparing students effectively to perform well on the standardized test and beyond. Whoa. So let's unpack (laughs) why this is so important. Okay. I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like common sense. If you are lucky to go to a high school that does a good job teaching you stuff, Mm -hmm. right? You go on and you do better in college, Mm -hmm. right? This is what we do expect. But what's interesting about that? First of all, that there is such variation at the high school level. I mean, there's some people who just feel like, you know, it's just so, it's so hard to detect uh, much learning in high school anyways. Uh, So much (laughs) of the learning happens, you know, as kids get older, they just don't make as much progress, Mm -hmm. right? There's not, but that you don't see big, well, there are, you can find these differences across high schools and that they are related to important long-term outcomes. That's right. Now, there are some people out there, Amber. <laughs> Let's go ahead and give this a little name. <laughs> name them. I was going to say, are we oh, this is Mike's we list? Well, it's yes. Just Jay Our friends, to us. I don't know. Jay Green, Mike McShane, and, and some of the crowd over uh, there on the Jay Green right? blog. Yes, Jason Bedrick, who, who have been saying that there is not much evidence that schools that boost test scores. Uh, also boost other long-term outcomes that we care about. And therefore, we should be uh, dubious about uh, using test scores to evaluate schools or certainly to make high-stakes decisions Mm -hmm. like shutting down low-performing charter schools. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, nah, 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 people. Here's at least (laughs) one piece of evidence. And there's more. There's a few others. And the literature review mentions some of the other studies out Mm -hmm. there. It did? They're they're right. Look, Jay Jay and Mike and the others are right that there's not a ton out there, but there's some. Mm And this and is now growing. another one. Yeah. And if more growing. funders would fund studies like this, it would grow even it more. It would right? probably <laughs> grow even more. And uh, and it's encouraging. Look, I, you know, it's it's hugely important for accountability, certainly in the in the school choice realm and charter schools, but accountability writ large. I mean, mm-hmm, the whole right. purpose of the whole reason that so many of us forever have been saying that we need to hold schools accountable, all kinds of schools, is the assumption that test scores, while imperfect, do measure something important that is related to stuff that we do care about, like long-term success in college. Yeah. No, um, I also found it particularly interesting. I was maybe didn't process it, but the impact of going from, if you're a low-performing student, from going to a school where students perform very, very poorly to just low-performing is greater than if they're in a high-performing school and they go to a very right. high-performing so you do, school. You, you, you get, um, gain more if you are in a school that goes from very low to low. Yeah. Meaning, yeah. meaning that it might have strong value added, right? right? That they, these are schools, you know, high-poverty yeah. schools with low 
test scores, but kids making a, a lot of progress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are the kinds of schools like high-performing charter schools that, right. that we often see in many yeah. places. Uh, yeah. And yes, it's better off if you're in those schools than if you're not. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Very cool. This is exciting. We need more of this, exciting. people. I know, and, and we had a hard time finding it, right? Like you clicked on three clicks well, in some 74 article or something. Tip to Matt Barnum, who yeah. uh, mentioned in his year-end uh, roundup about stuff we mm-hmm. learned this year from mm-hmm. research, and he made a reference to this yeah, one, which I, I had missed. It came back it. from October. Yeah. Yeah. This one needs uh, needs more love. More it's an important one. Uh, of course, the, those 13 pages of findings, we'll need to have some methodologists yeah. figure out. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a lot. And, uh, and, and by the way, it's fun to buy IES. So, I mean, I think that's what happens mm-hmm. sometimes. Like, we don't know that IES is funding some really cool stuff until mm-hmm. after the effect. Mm-hmm. Um, after the mm-hmm. fact. So, Good. anyway, kudos to IES. Very, for very Funding cool. stuff that actually has real policy implications. Great way to start off the year, Amber. <laughs> Woohoo. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Melissa Schwenk. And I'm Mike Petrilli. Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.